the book of the Acts of the Apostles, 18, and verse 24, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, where all the intellectuals and the theologians were, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he, and being, he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, who had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper borders, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And the word since has two values. A time value is a long time since I saw you, or since you're going to Swansea, could I have a lift? And I believe that Paul is not asking time-wise, but since you say you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? He saw a flaw in their experience. And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there is any Holy Spirit. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him who should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. I am not going to expound that portion of Scripture, but it will form a good background for the topic we are going to deal with. Now, my brothers in the work of the Lord... There are two equal dangers confronting those who battle for souls. One is of seeing a mighty work of God, in quotes, when there is no work of God, or of not seeing a work of God when there is a work of God. You know, some people go home from meetings feeling nothing has happened, and they feel they never want to preach again. Even Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that one day he was preaching, and his words seemed to go one yard and stop and fall to the ground. That awful feeling. Are you afraid people will lynch you at the end of the service? Are you afraid they'll shake hands at the door? And yet, fine later, so many got converted. And then you go from some rallies, say, we had a mighty time tonight. And people who were there more discerning said, there was nothing there tonight. Lindsay Glegg's son, who was a brilliant scholar, was preaching one night during Haringey, and his service was at about six in the evening. So after preaching at his own service, he then went to Haringey, where Dr. Billy was preaching. And when he got back, his father said, well, how do things go tonight? Oh, he said, in my meeting, mighty power, no souls. In Billy's meetings, no power, 
terrific souls. <laughs> Very disconcerting for the dear man. Question is, how do we know uh, that God has done a work, is doing a work? You see, if somebody gets saved and they show all the signs we're looking for, full-blown change around, with me God delivered me from drinking and smoking and gambling and fighting and flirting. In a moment, he took a moment to deliver me. Fine, my father and mother, my, my father, pardon me, my mother was in heaven, uh, was glad and gratified to see David is really born again. No problem with a fully-fledged new life Christian. But do you recognize the beginnings of God's work? And encourage that, you see. Great pity with some of the people in Wales, if you're not fully converted, immediately showing all the signs, you're written off. You're never encouraged to go on from there. We were having a discussion at the table. An evangelist might get a man to move from A to C. That's all he's done, he's moved from A to C. But how nice if the church can take over and move him from C right to the heart of the matter. And so I've asked myself the question, how do I determine which is the standard experience of God? Now, a Professor James wrote a book many years ago called The Variety of Religious Experience, but his was more of a philosophical analysis of the metaphysical experience. I want to try and make it a bit more down to earth. Now, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to ask you some questions here. I don't want you to discuss them now, but as I tell the students in the Bible College of Wales, I may not give you all the answers, but if I can get you to face some questions, it won't hurt you. Now, for example, I'm going to ask you this question. Must all converts, must all converts, to use a popular expression, weep their way to the cross? Would you be happy about a happy conversion? With somebody getting saved and getting excited about it and so pleased. Or would you be only happy about somebody who's down in the depths of despair under the weight of conviction? Now, how would you feel about a happy conversion? I led a woman to Christ once in Tenethi, and I led her son-in-law. Uh, they were getting on in years, and as I was showing her what Christ had done, she kept saying to me, Ooh, that's lovely. Ooh, is that so? Ooh, that's nice. And in the end, she got down on the knees and she took Christ so happily. Do you understand me now? Now, you'd have thought, well, she wasn't well saved. Don't you believe it? She's gone home to glory now. Five years later, she was still rejoicing in that salvation. Now, I, there's a phrase in many old men's prayers. Nothing wrong with it, and I'm not criticizing it. Oh, God, make sinners weep their way to the cross. We're familiar with that. Now, let me ask you. Did you weep your way to the cross when you got saved? Or did you weep your way from the cross? Because I shall be asking the corollary of that in the next moment. But uh, here's the question. Would you be happy with a happy conversion? Dr. Campbell Morgan says, I cannot remember the day when I got saved, but I was brought up in a home where the love of God so pervaded the home that I opened like a flower to the sun. And I received Christ into my life, and his, and his experience subsequently proved it was a real experience. Now, it's worth you thinking about that. It's too bad when you're looking for people to be saved, and they've all got the marks of unspeakable poverty of spirit, which is nice to see. I like to see people crying. I like to tend to think, oh, they're good, they're crying. But I've had some young people in a counselling room, and they're all listening as if they're so dependent, but one is sitting over there is grinning all over her face. 
And sometimes I send people out of the inquiry room, say, you, you, you don't know what you're coming here for. But I've said, well, she hasn't got it. Only to find out later that she was the only one who got it. <laughs> it's, 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 it's rather humiliating and, and salutary. You see, once my professor said to me, don't put your pit dogmas in pigeonholes because they'll take wings and fly away. Now, that was a very good statement. So, just to make us, I may not give the answers, but let's ask the question. If God is my witness, if I've tried to be anything in 40 years, I've tried to be honest about what I believe and what I experience. Uh, this has made me a theologian, but it has made me ask questions. Here's just the next thing I want to ask you. Think about this. Does real, and I emphasize the word real, does real repentance come before salvation or after salvation? Now, I ask questions about repentance. Is repentance a feeling? Is it an action? Is it an attitude? When I lecture to the students, I try to answer. But let me ask you a question now. Did you a real, and I mean real repentance, that godly sorrow for sin come before your salvation or after? For how can you really repent of the enormity of your sin when you do not know what he is like against whom you have sinned but when you find out what he's like oh then you repent there is a repentance that God commands a simple psychologist will tell you you have no right to make to order people to feel you can order them to think you can order them to act but you can't order anybody to feel you can't order someone to love you if, if repentance is a feeling, how can it be commanded? God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now the answer is simple. I think repentance is a man going to God to apologize for the way he's treated God. My mother used to say to me when I was a boy, when I'd hit somebody, see, his nose was bleeding. She said, say sorry. Well, the pity is I didn't feel sorry. So I couldn't go and say sorry, but I found a compromise. I apologized. I said, I apologize for hitting you. I don't feel sorry. But when I got to know him later, I said, you know, I hit you on the nose last week. Well, I'm sorry. Can we become pals? Now, think about this. I did not weep my way to the cross, but I wept for hours after I'd come to the cross. I don't remember weeping when I got saved. But I wept for hours. God is my witness as I realize how good... You see, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Not, the, not your badness or his holiness. It's only God's goodness that makes you repent. If God were a tyrant, you wouldn't repent. You repent against a law that was good and a God that was good and a Jesus that was good. You hit a bully and you don't feel sorry, but you hit a little woman and you feel that you're a brute. And when you realize that God is good... His goodness leads me to repentance. I say for my part that real repentance came for me. The real, the real, what Paul speaks about in Corinthians, that godly sorrow for sin that brings a repentance not to be repented of. How could you really repent against God that you didn't know? It's only when you get to know him that you really repent, the proper repentance. I wanted to ask Philip Hacking a question this morning. We must preach repentance, is what he said, and he's right. John preached it. But you know what I feel? Nobody preaches about sin in such a way that we do repent. We are told to repent. They say they preach faith in Christ. They should so preach Christ that people believe. We don't preach faith or repentance. 
And I never heard sin described as, as a wicked thing. That is how I was hurting God. But when I got converted and found out what God was like and what he'd been like to me before I knew him, it broke me down completely. And I'm not a sentimental kind of Christian, but I tell you this much. I cried and cried and cried. I didn't cry my way to the cross, but I cried my way from the cross. So now, would you be happy with what you call a matter-of-fact salvation? When I got saved on a Saturday afternoon, I didn't jump over the chairs. I didn't shout hallelujah. But I just got down before God and I surrendered my wicked heart to his will. But later, later, oh, later, up in that bedroom where I learned to get to know him, then I broke me down before him. Now, there's a good question, because, you see, there's a controversy, as I told you, in America, on the Lordship of Christ. Nobody can get saved unless they recognize the Lordship, not only recognize the Lordship of Christ, which God has made him, but to make him Lord, and they cannot be saved any other way. Now, Louis Berry Schaefer that spiritual man wrote a book on grace, and he said, if you impose anything between the sinner and God, you rob grace of its glory. Even repentance, he said. Even repentance. Be very careful that you don't make repentance the reason why God saves you. The reason why God saves you is pure, undiluted grace. With God hoping for nothing in return, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Plain. Grace is hoping for nothing in return but meeting our need. Now, those are the questions I've asked myself, because the moment I start looking for the familiar signs, there might have been somebody there more ready for salvation than I ever thought. How deceived you can be by appearance. May I give you one word of advice? Always believe what God says about a man, not what you feel about a man. Let me illustrate in this way. When I was working in the sheet mills in South Wales, before I went away to college, yeah, remember I told you it was a tough, tough place. People hit you first and then told you why afterwards, sort of thing. And um, I felt that if God was going to take me, as I hoped, to South America, how could he take me to South America when there were 300 men in the factory that I hadn't witnessed to? So I made up my mind, God helping me, that I'd say something to every one of them about the Lord Jesus. And one by one, I worked my way through the men in the place. But there was one man there I'll never forget. His name was Bill Holder. He came from Staffordshire. He was a terrible man. Talked to nobody. Laughed at nothing. Smiled in return for nothing. And everybody was afraid of Bill Holder. Nobody, they left him alone. The tongs he handled to put things in the furnace. You wouldn't have lifted up the tongs. So what he could do with you, I mean, he could tell you around his neck. And I felt, oh God, I said, I can't speak to Bill Holder. He'll throw me in the furnace. See? And that's the feeling I had. You say, talk to me. And it, it, it reported, <laughs> young Welshman burnt to death. But anyway, one night I'd worked from two o'clock until ten. That was eight hours, hard grind. And the foreman said, there's a man can't come in tonight. Will you work another shift? And to work another eight hours through the night, it was exacting. I said, yes, I'll do it, I'll do it. And they put me in the team. Who do you think the furnace man was? Bill Holder. Oh, I said, Lord, I've got close to him. I'll have to talk to him, see. Because I knew I'd be leaving the sheet mills. So I chose the moment and I went up to him and said, um, Bill, I'd like to tell you something. He stood with his legs wide open like that, you know. Tongs in his hand. He looked at me as if to say, well, what is it? Get on with it. Get away. 
I said, Bill, I said, before long I shall be leaving the sheep mills. He said, so what? Well, I'd like to tell you why I'm leaving, I said. <laughs> Feeling my way into the danger zone. And uh, then I began to tell him. And you know, to my utter amazement, down his cheeks I saw the tears coursing, making white marks in his dirty face. And he stood there and he cried. And I thought, oh, how wrong can I be? He was the only man down whose face I saw the tears running. And yet I said, he's the only man who couldn't care less and would throw me in the furnace. And you know, you're looking for signs. You're looking for signs. You may look in vain. I was preaching down in West London in Hounslow years ago. And as I preached, a woman shouted out in meeting. Shouted out. And as I made the appeal, she shouted, I'll come, I'll come. And a friend of mine on the platform said, that woman is a practicing devil worshipper in this area. And I thought, as, as I was preaching, she was grinning at me, grinning, grinning evilly the whole time. And I thought, oh dear, there'll be no hope for me there. But you know, she got gloriously saved that night. What are you looking for now? What are the hallmarks that God is always working in a meeting? Some revivals, people have fallen over the place. Other revivals, they've risen up in ecstasy. In other revivals, they've been quiet. Some Scottish revivals went on, and all they saw were their people with their heads bowed and their shoulders shaking as they sobbed under a sense of their need. Who is to tell that this is the way or that is the way? It would be awful to say that God is doing a mighty work when he's doing nothing or to say that he's doing nothing when he may be doing a wonderful work. That's why we're so dependent on the Holy Spirit to help us to go on regardless, believing that the gospel is still the power of God. man worked with me for years, Marshal Chalice. He was commander in the Navy. What a man. If you've ever heard the name, if you heard the name of Marshal, what a godly man was Marshal. And, you know, we, had, we were a team of men in the wild sea in those days. And each one of us had a pen name or a nickname. I was known as a Sheppy. Martin Bo Higginbottom was known as a Higgy. And somebody else was known as an Elfie. But he was known as a Shally. So that, uh, the, what it meant is this, we all had our idiosyncrasies. I won't tell you what mine was, but he's done a Sheppy, they said, see. Now, do you know what Marshall Shally's idiosyncrasy was? When we met as evangelists, we said, well, Marshall, have you had a good time? He said, yes, but not much. Has God blessed you? Well, yes, but not much. Well, what happened then? Oh, he said, uh, there were people saved. We said, how many? Well, he said, everybody in the village except the district nurse. He said, there were six elders and three ministers. But he never saw God working mightily. And we called it a shally, you know. Some people, they never seem to think that God is working. They don't expect Him to work. Blessed is he that expecteth nothing, for he shall not be disappointed. And I would, and I would say this to you. It's a it, it, variety of religious experiences worth looking at. So now ask yourself that question. Now, let me ask you a third question. We're all familiar with the fact that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. But what do you believe about the Holy Spirit convicting the world of righteousness? Convincing the world of righteousness. Now, you know it says in John 16, when he is come, and I may dilate on this a little later, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Then he tells you why. Because of, of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. But what about convincing the world of righteousness? 
You see, how many times have you heard people say, I got saved because I met some people and they had something that I didn't have. And I believe that they were convicted of righteousness. Now this is a great danger. Will Smart, who worked in our team, went to uh, a, a church in Scarborough. He was met at the door by a tubby little man who says, We like some saved in this church, and we like some out the front. He said. So Will was given his orders, that he likes them out the front, like fish, I suppose, that he caught on the seafront. But the thing is this, what about being convicted of righteousness? Can people be convicted of righteousness? You see... We expect them all to be convicted that they're wrong. But can they be convicted that you are right? And they want what you've got. That would be a terrible thing that Jesus Christ becomes a sort of ultimatum. Do you accept Christ or else? And if you reject Christ, you go to hell. People do not go to hell for rejecting Christ. They go to hell because of sin. For this cause cometh the wrath of God on the Gentiles. This sin. It's a terrible thing to make Jesus Christ the reason why they go to hell. Even a rejected Christ, that is not the reason. A man drowns because he's in the water. You don't blame the life belt he didn't take. And uh, I say this, they say of Lionel B. Fletcher, now only take this for what it's worth. I wasn't there. But Frederick P. Wood, who is well revered amongst many of us here, knew Lionel B. Fletcher. Lionel B. Fletcher, unashamedly, dangled before people by well-garnished stories, not quite in the Gypsy Smith, which were three handkerchief ones. He, I think he carried three handkerchiefs for his stories, three handkerchiefs at night. But Lionel B. Fletcher portrayed to people, if you like, the loveliness and the beauty of holiness and the ugliness of sin and the awful consequences of life without God. And he said, wouldn't you like to know this life? And they came forward for that life. He says, when they got into the inquiry room, he got up and preached the gospel. Then for 15 or 20 minutes, he explained the gospel. See? Now, is it wrong for people, I'm only asking, to be convicted of righteousness? You say, but David Shepherd, you've separated three things, and you are right. There's no need to separate them. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. You're wrong, you better get right, and you can get right, and you better hurry up. There's judgment coming. But what about that bit in the middle, convicting the world of righteousness? We always seem to feel, as they said, oh, I held them dangling over hell. Uh, you know, they were squirming. What a spiritual sadism that can be. Would you like to feel that you had, were treated as somebody who's only going to hell and God is only interested in your soul and not in you and in your life? Now, it's worth thinking about that. And I have had to think about it. Now, what do you think of this question? And maybe if there's time at the end, we'll go through them again and you can give, give your own answers. What are the merits or the demerits of asking a sinner to turn from his sin and come to Jesus? Now, you've heard that expression and we use it. Turn from your sin and come to Christ. We are told about the Thessalonians, they turn to God from idols. It is not from idols to God, but they turn to God from idols. And the, the quotation seems to say, it was in turning to God they found the power to turn their back on idols. Now I'm only asking this, because again, 
There's a danger of seeing nothing. Can you ask a man to turn from his sins? Now there's another question. Would you have let a sinner come to Christ with reservations? Let me give you an example. I was preaching once in Bromley, Kent, in a tent, and we were having a very good time. A big crowds and people were coming to Christ. One night a captain in the British Army came in and said to me, Mr. Shepherd, he said, I want to ask you a question. If I have you a God, do I have to give up beer? You understand what I mean by beer? Booze, dirty, filthy booze. He said, if I have your God, he said, do I have to give up beer? See? Now, I was going to say to him, pardon me, sir, any pistol you hold to God's head is plumb wrong. You don't hold a pistol to God's head. You don't say to God, you give me this or else. That's what I would have told him. He said, come on, he said, straight out. If I have you a God, do I have to give up beer? I said, right, oh, I said, since you ask me, I said, yes. Yes, you must. Then he said, keep your God. I said, with pleasure. He's worth keeping. Good night. He stamped out of the tent. I'm not going to tell you I didn't worry. I worried a bit. But I wasn't going to say, oh, well, we'll talk about it and see if God hasn't got something under the counter for you. End of summer sale and sort of things. No, I wasn't going to do that. But you know, later that night, later that night, he went to the minister. He said, that man, shepherd's right. I need God more than I need beer. And beer was only his, little, his smallest problem. And he passed from death to life. Now, if he had come to me and said, Mr. Shepherd, I'd love to know God, but my, I hit the bottle. I hit the bottle. I don't know how I'm going to cope. Would I have been right to say, bring your bottle as well? Now, don't answer yet. In the Ronda Valley, I was preaching, and a young man sitting by the wall said, Mr. Shepherd, he said, if I have Christ, I would give up fags. Another dirty, filthy thing, fags. So I said, do I have to give up fags? He said, what did you say? I said, what did you say? He said, if I have Christ, do I have to give up fags? I said, don't you dare ask me that again, I said. A packet of dirty, filthy fags and Jesus Christ, how dare you? Now, whether you think that was the right answer or not, it's too late, I gave it. <laughs> I said, I said, don't talk to me. I said, don't, don't ask me that again, I said. But if both those men had come to me and said, Mr. Shepherd, I'd love to be right with God, but... Ugh. Mr. Shepherd, I'd love to know Christ, but... I'd have said, bring your fags as well. In other words, you can't come as you like, but you can come as you are. You come as I like. I will follow thee, but you will do nothing of the kind. Now, let me ask you. Would you let a sinner come with with reservations. Now, let me give you an extreme example. I was, uh, I was in some place and a girl said to me, Mr. Shepherd, she said, um, and she was swaying a bit like this and her hands in her jeans. She said, I'm thinking of becoming a Christian, she said. But of course, she said, I'm not going to change my way of life, you know. Then I said, Miss, I said, go away. I said, I haven't got that kind of salvation. I haven't got it. If she had said to me, I'd like to become a Christian, but oh, how I'm going to change, I don't know. I said, my dear girl, come as you are. Come as you are. Have you the right to tell them? I'll tell you a sad story. 
I was telling the boys at the table, there was a girl in our village, and I knew her very well. She was the t- right type for us unconverted fellows, I can tell you. I won't say she was a tart, but she was the next thing to one. Marian was her name. When she went to church one night, I wasn't there. And she got saved through Stanley Phillips. And there must have been something in her life, because the next day I was cutting uh, the grass in front of the house. I don't know why I was doing it, but I was doing it. Uh, and she passed and she said to me, it's your turn next, David, she said in Welsh. It's your turn next. So there must have something there for her to tell me even that. She didn't explain and witness. She just said that. So it looked as if at last this cheap little girl had got saved. Her father said to her, now Marian, he said, come here. Don't you forget don't you forget? Don't you forget? And he started reading to her, not Christ, but the Christian life. And the girl who put down the burden of guilt and the burden of sin was given the burden of the Christian life. And we never saw her again. Now, weren't you glad of the people who put up with you? God delivered me in a second from smoking, but I know of men he hasn't delivered them from smoking. Do you have the right to write them off? If they say... I, I couldn't care less. I'm not going to give it up. You're talking of different things. You see, when you're born again, a strange thing happens. The lust, the spirit lusted against the flesh, and the flesh against the spirit, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You may do them, but you know in your heart, I shouldn't be doing this. But uh, are you expecting intelligent, full-blown, visibly transformed experiences every time? Doesn't God begin a work in people? Isn't it a beginning of a work? And you are, and I are to bring them from there to somewhere else. In fact, I've known an evangelist who say that their appeal is only to get people from there to here. They don't say they've got them to Christ, but they get them from there to here. Now they come the council and the pastors and the church fellows to take over from there and lead them to a real knowledge of Christ. We read here in the days of, of Apollos, he was preaching, and a, a, a discerning man and woman said, he's got good religion, in fact it's almost New Testament. But he hasn't got it, he hasn't got it. And he took Apollos, an eloquent man, and a clever man, and they explained to him the way of the Lord more perfectly. The result was that his converts, that he had already dealt with, were no higher than he was. They were receiving the baptism of John, but they'd never known that there was the baptism of the Holy Spirit that made them part of the body of Christ. The Christ that John preached about. As soon as they heard that, they accepted readily. But how easy to have written Apollos off, say, oh, he's a, he's a liberal. No, they took him and explained him the way of God more perfectly. I'm grateful for my experience. One young man was telling me at the table how he understood that Christ had died on the cross for him. He understood it. I said, you are Christ honored to have had such a fundamental grasp. But some of us had to learn it after being saved. God never waited for us to understand it all. Now, what about this then? Would you ever feel it is right when you are counseling a sinner to argue him or her into a position of assurance. In other words, you take the scriptures and you argue them into a place of assurance. Let me give you an example now. 
I have a I counsel someone, shall we say, here, and I my usual procedure is to show them why they need to be saved, number two, why they may be saved, and number three, what they've got to do to be saved. I like to take uh, Isaiah 59 as a basic text. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. What should flow from God to you doesn't, and what should flow to God from you doesn't. Because there's a broken connection. Now Christ is the one who repairs the breach, and he brings us to God. You see? Now, I explain it in that way. So I said, now would you like to ask him? And they pray. So they pray, as they've done with you. And they pray what sounds an orthodox prayer. Now, is it right to take a scripture like this, John 6.37? Now, my friend, I want you to look with me and see what Jesus says. Uh, it says here that if any, anyone that comes to me, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Now, Jesus said that him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. What have you done in your prayer who are you coming to in your prayer? Oh, they say, well, to Jesus. Right. So what have you done? You've come to Jesus. Now, what does Jesus say to people who come to him? He says here, I say, he says here, I will in no wise, no wise. You've accepted any old excuse to cast him out, but he won't accept any excuse to cast you out. In no wise cast out. Oh, she said, yeah. Well, now, if he hasn't cast you out, what has he done? Well, he's taken me in. Would you like to thank him for that? Now, I know people say you can't do that. You mustn't do that. Do you ever believe in pronouncing somebody saved? I'm going to tell you something that you won't believe. I hope you believe all I've said to so far, but I'll tell you something when you find it hard to believe. But I was there and it happened. But do you argue people into an assurance through your knowledge of Scripture? Do you leave it to the Holy Spirit to give them assurance? Or do you do it for God? Now, internetly, I was preaching one night, and I was inviting people to come down the aisle and into the room at the back, where they would be helped. And one night, there came in a fine-looking young fellow, sandy-haired, open-faced, and being Welsh, what else could he be but attractive-looking, see? And he came in and he said, and he turned out later, I found out, he had quite a bit of head on him too. Oh, I said, hello, I said, what do you want? Well, he said, I want to be saved. He said, oh, I said, good. I said, I'm glad to tell you that God wants it even more than you do. I said, come and sit with me here. He was something like 22, 22 years of age. Anyway, I took my Bible now and I showed him. Uh, I, I said things like this, you do not get saved by making promises to God, but you get saved because he's made promises to you. And I want you to believe his promises, you see, and so on. So I began to explain the way of salvation, and then I said, well, I said, do you want to be saved? He said, I do. Well, would you like to pray with me? He said, I would. So we got down on our knees, and he prayed. And he asked the Lord Jesus to save him. Well, when he had prayed, I said, well, I said to him, has he done it? Has he saved you? I can see him now. He put his, he put his hand like this. He said, well, he said, I don't know. I said, why? Didn't you ask him? He said, I, he said, I did. I said, did you mean it? He said, I did. Well, hasn't he saved you? Well, he said, I don't know. I said, do you really want to be saved? He said, I do. Are you sure? I said, let me show you again. I took him through the scriptures again. I said, do you see that? He said, I do. See that? Now, will we, would you like to pray? He said, yes. So, we prayed again. 
And he asked the Lord Jesus to save him. Lord Jesus, I want you to come into my life and save me, see. When he prayed, I said to him the second time, well, I said, has he done it? He said, well, he said, I don't know. Of course, you know why. Why wasn't he, you know, leaping over the chair, slapping everybody in the back, shouting hallelujah? Why wasn't his face becoming red and hot? And somebody said to Job, did your hair stand up? Did your body clear? Did you have goose pimples? You better listen to me. He didn't have that. I said, hey, wait a minute. I said, is Jesus Christ a liar? Is Jesus Christ a liar? Who oh, said no. Well, it sounds like it. He tells you to come to him and he'll receive you. But when you come, he doesn't. I said, is he a liar? Who oh, said no. Well, it sounds like it. I said, do you really want to be saved? What should I do? So I showed him some more scriptures. I said, shall we pray now? He said, yes. <laughs> so we prayed the third time, see? I said, well, I said, has he done it? I saw his hand going for his head. <laughs> I said, listen, fellow, I said, he told me he was living with his grandmother in Burryport. I said, listen, I said, if you won't believe Jesus Christ, I will. I pronounce you saved. <laughs> Go home and tell your grandmother. Well, now, he went out to that church. I, I confess unashamedly, I worried stiff. <laughs> oh, I said, you don't do that. We're not Catholic priests. I said, I said, you don't do that. And that was Monday night. I didn't see him on Tuesday. And if I remember correctly, I didn't see him on Wednesday. I said, oh, I said, where is he? Where is he? What have I done? See? But you know, the next night, he was coming down the aisle to me. And his face was shining. Oh, he said, Mr. Shepherd, he said, it works. It works, he said. As I went down the road, I said to myself, Can Jesus Christ taunt a sinner? He's died on a cross to do something painful. Now, surely, he said, he said, I felt like leaping off the road. I told my grandmother, God has saved me. And you know, I was preaching in London, and a funny coincidence, remember I said about Osborne getting saved, and he had a woman on his arm? I was preaching in London, I think it was in Westminster Chapel, and down the aisle he came. He was a BSc at this time. And uh, he said, do you remember me? I said, Tanefi. Tanefi. He, he said, that's right, here we are. And he got saved. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've never done it since. <laughs> Not for my own sake. But I think that was a special occasion. See? But I know of men who've argued this way. One man couldn't trust, you see, the Lord. And D.L. Moody said, whom are you doubting? Whom are you doubting? He suddenly sighed. Doubting Jesus. Somebody told a woman one day who couldn't trust, you see. He was showing them all the scriptures and she couldn't trust. And he said to her, well, my dear, if you cannot trust him, why don't you trust him? And immediately she saw the difference between putting faith in her faith and putting faith in the Savior. If you cannot trust him, why don't you trust him? And she saw it. Now, there was a man arguing a woman into a helpful place. Well, you were glad of help. Is it so wrong to give help to other people? But some people say, oh, but you don't do that, you see. You don't do that. Well, I still don't pronounce people saved, but I've had to tell a man in the church, Derek, I said, I believe God has done a work in your heart. I'm waiting for you to tell me. Let the Redeemer of the Lord say so. But I believe that God had done a work in his heart. But he didn't know. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit can give us discernment. 
See, some of us are so used to getting up. I want to get up tonight and by the grace of God I want to testify that I've received Christ as my own and personal saviour. I've let him down many times but he's never let me down. And by his grace I mean to go on. <laughs> you know, we're used to the other people don't know how to say that. And yet they, I know of a man who said something happened to me and he didn't know what it was. When I read my New Testament I found out what it was. That God had given me his salvation and he didn't know. He, he had, mind you, he had cried to God. One of the generals in Frederick the Great's army prayed this prayer one day. Oh God, he said, if there is a God, save my soul if I've got a soul. Well, you can't be more remote than that. <laughs> and yet God had seen the cry of his heart. Now, I, I'll be honest with you. When you're dealing with spiritual matters, you need discernment. A lot of discernment. So, let's consider those things. Now, here's an interesting question. At least I think so. Is it possible that someone who is a Roman Catholic or Seventh-day Adventist, I would like to include Jehovah's Witness, but they are so self-destroying in their views, I won't put them in, but I'll put in the Seventh-day Adventists and uh, a Roman Catholic who bow to the authority of Scriptures who see the virgin birth and the, and the atoning death. But anybody in that category, a good person in the religious, in the church, is it possible to say that they are saved, but they have never announced it in so many words? Now let me give you an illustration as quickly as I can. One of the women God used most mightily at one time was the Maréchal, French word for Marshal. She was the daughter of the great William Booth. And she was a devastating preacher. Her denunciations of sin were, were scorching and great men bowed down in conviction under her preaching. Now she was conducting a crusade in Norway in a large auditorium, and as she spoke about our uh, responsibility before God, our accountability, a young woman, a young girl, ran down the aisle and onto the platform with a, an image of the Virgin Mary, and she began to pray to the Virgin Mary. Of course, the lieutenants, the officers, moved in to remove this abomination of desolation in the holy place. <laughs> To get it out, see. How terrible. But the Marishal said, get back, she said. Get back! God is more broad-minded than you. That girl is coming in the only way she's ever been taught. Let her come to God. But we'll tell her that that is not the way. Please remember one little word. God has been propitiated by the death of Christ. If a man is truly coming to God... Can God be saying, when I see the blood, I don't receive you because of your goodness, but I'm receiving you because you are showing signs of real repentance towards sin. You don't know the source of forgiveness, but I know it. I know it. By the same token that some of us did not understand the doctrine of the atonement when we got saved, but God did. You see, a man may come to God, I'm only suggesting this, in the only way he knows. But God knows his heart. And because God is propitiated. Propitiation is something Christ did with God. We are reconciled. He is propitiated. 
And God has found satisfaction so that he can now administer grace to those where he finds the qualifications of repentance and trust. And yet they themselves may be deluded. Because I'll be honest with you, when I see an Anglican, a nice, clean, living Anglican, it's a hard thing to say. You're on your way to hell, and some of us will enjoy saying it. My mother-in-law was an Anglican. I, I had the joy of leading her to Christ. But what she did when she came to Christ was have a personal enjoyment of salvation. But was I to tell that she'd never have known a saving grace when she was really wanting to be right with God, but she didn't know any other way. The vicars never told her. Now, I'm not, I don't go about with these arrows in my quiver. I don't tell the unconverted these things. I'm, telling, I'm asking you. You see, I will repeat it, that we've got our own idea of the kind of atmosphere that is conviction. I've been in meetings where I was in Scarborough once. It was the worst meeting I've ever had. I can't remember a meeting like it. I was afraid to go to the door to shake hands because they'd hit me. That awful thing that everybody's looking for you, hound. Oh, it is a terrible night. I'll never forget it. It's the worst night I can ever remember. And I've had a few bad ones in my time. But you know, when I went down to the floor, the people who came to me from every direction, how God had spoken to them, and brought them under conviction and shown them their need, as if God was wanting to leave it all to himself that night. I don't know. But you'd be a very strange man if you had it all nicely tied up, that you know all the indications, and you've expected more from the sinner than you had the right to expect. Sometimes you expect less than you should. It behooves us never, as Professor Davidson said to me, never to put your dogmas in pigeonholes, because they might take wings and fly away. And uh, here's the other thing that I'd like to ask you. What about the world? Would you, uh, would you include the world and its lifestyle? I must confess that I judge a lot of salvation by appearance, and I think I've got the right to. Because man judges by the outward appearance. God sees the heart. That's why Paul says, be not conformed to this world. Why not? Because that's the only judgment the world have. It's what they see of you. When I was preaching in Spurgeon's Tabernacle one night, it was actually during Billy Graham's crusade in Haringey. In fact, I told people, if you can't get in here, go to Haringey. It's <laughs> 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 the other way around, of course. But I remember saying that for fun. But uh, a young woman came in one night, and as she came through the door, I confessed to you as I stood on the pulpit, I said, gosh, I said, that girl needs Jesus. She had the lot. In those days, it was mousy hair. They put talcum powder and brushed it forward. Mascara, earrings that started there and ended down here. I wouldn't like to tell you how tight her waist was and so on. And she came into the meeting scene and I said, there's a girl who needs Christ. So I preached. I didn't go down to speak to her, but the next night she was back again. And the third night she was back again. So I went down this time and said, yeah, miss, I said, I've noticed you three nights, thank you for coming. And I never say that, uh, you know, patronizing. I'm always glad to think that people come to hear me. So I thanked her. I said, tell me, I said, are you a Christian? Oh, she said, yes. Rather. Oh, I said, good. I said, good. How long have you been a Christian? And so she mentioned some time. I said, where did you become a Christian? She told me where. I said, what did you do to become a Christian? She told me something. 
I wasn't happy. So in order to draw her, I said, tell me, I said, when you became a Christian, was there a change in your life? She said, yes, I suppose so. In order to help her to be specific, I asked her this question. Uh, I said, you know, before you got, became a Christian, you, you went a lot to the cinema. Who said, rather, yeah. I said, when you became a Christian, uh, did you still go? Oh, yes. I said, now, did you feel when you got there that you were somehow or other out of your element now? You know, that you, you began to feel uncomfortable. Oh, she said, not really. She said, I admit that when I'm there on Sunday, I sometimes think I ought to be in church. <laughs> I said, miss, I said, I don't know what you think you've got, but let me give you a bit of advice. Forget it. I said, forget it, I said. Here's a huge reservoir with 10 million tons of water. Down here's a dirty, stagnant pool. Somebody opens a sluice gate. Out come millions of tons of fresh water. Tell me, I said, what would happen to that dirty little pool? Oh, shit, it'd be washed out, wouldn't it? Do you know who you received when you became a Christian? The holy, the living Lord Jesus with his purity. And fair play to the girl, she saw it and bowed her head and her heart and her will with me. But I see some strange people. You go to America... That was one of the questions about Billy Graham's wife. See, when she came over first, see? Ooh, lashings of this and lashings of that. Ah. But the Christian girls who took an excuse from her seeming paintedness, I said, if your Bible is half as worn as Ruth's Bible, I don't mind you copying her lipstick, see? But you've got to have a very open view when you go to somebody who was saved in America. I believe that when I got saved, I, 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 I couldn't. I had to get rid of my motorbike in the end. I couldn't go up steps and pass a bit of paper on the floor. I had to pick it up. I never threw it down, but I couldn't pass it without picking it up. I expected salvation to be, you know, complete and thorough. I don't like people coming to church looking as if they're unmade beds. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I, you wouldn't go to your wedding like that. But now I've got to ask myself the question, what about the lifestyle? What about the lifestyle? I was interested with our lovely Yehudi Mahuin giving his testimony this morning. I would love to have asked him about James Fox and Cliff Richards. For who can speak better than this dear man? Of course, he gave the right answer. He dominated his life, see? But you, you, my wife will not have it, you see, and I know she's wrong, but she will not have it that Cliff is a thoroughly born-again, spirit-possessed believer when she sees the kind of, of things that are in the program. Uh, well, of course, I, I wouldn't go that far. But aren't we all dependent on something deeper than what we see? And our preconceived ideas. I do expect people, I do expect people to get tidier and cleaner and nicer to their fathers, and nicer to their mothers, and they do help to wash up, and he does help his father to dig the garden, he does help to paint the front gate. I do expect it. People weren't allowed to call me die after I got saved. You see, in Welsh, if you're David, you die. But uh, Christians wouldn't allow them to call me die. His name is David. He's David. Now, that, I frankly confess, was my outlook, and it is my outlook now to a large measure. But what about it then? Would you accept somebody into the faith? Tom Reese has an interesting thing. Ladies, you can shut your ears for a moment. It's not awful, but it's 
a bit less than awful. <laughs> but Tom Reese, you see, conducted the rallies in, in, in the Albert Hall. 9,000 a time, only once a month, but they were good rallies. And then Tom invited the Congress down to his palatial Ildeborough Hall in Kent, you see, in Otford Hills there. I've been there as a conference speaker. He's the evangelist for the up and outs. We're for the down and outs, you see. But Tom had all sorts and among those who got converted was a real teddy boy. If you can't remember, teddy boy, ask your grandfather. He'll tell you who he was. And a teddy boy came there, you see. And Tom Reese's great idea was to get them all to begin to pray. He didn't ask him to get up and expound the scriptures, but to get them to pray. So he was encouraging him to pray. <laughs> and this fellow got up and prayed. Will I dare say it now? <laughs> but he said, And oh God, Thank you that you showed me how to become a Christian, and etc., etc., etc. And he said, No, God, he said, <laughs> Look after this man, Tom Reese, because he's a damn good fellow, you see. Now, when I read that, something in me shriveled, see. We just don't even, in fact, I feel awfully guilty for even mentioning it, but I, I couldn't get the point across if I didn't. And what would you do with him? Now, be honest now, what would you do with him? use that word. I stopped swearing when I got saved. I stopped the ability to lose my temper when I got saved. The man who hit me before could have hit me 20 times now. But you see, he came there with all the trimmings of that life. And I have got, I've got to pray for grace to believe that God has begun a work and for me to encourage it from there and show them. Now, those are some of the things that have really engaged me. There are lots of other things that I ask about repentance. And I ask about salvation. What do you mean by salvation? Is it an obedience? Is it a relationship? Is it a changed life? Or is it a covenant? You see, if it's a changed life, if you're not totally changed, you're not saved. We don't ask questions. I was telling people at the table, people say, glory to God. Glory to God. I've said to many people, what is glory? What do you mean by glory? Well, they said, you know, glory to God. Glory. I know, I know that. But what do you mean? Well, you know, glory. <laughs> what do you mean by glory? They don't even know what they mean by glory. I then tell them what our glory actually is. is it? Not splendor. Glory touching significance to God. Weight is the Hebrew root. Heaviness. The opposite is lightness. Paul speaks about the weight of glory. The weight of glory awaiting us. But people use language and they have standards and they've never examined. A Christian experience that cannot be scrutinized is suspects. Have a good look at what you think and why you think it and what you feel. And don't go about with stereotyped ideas.